Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Canada's economy is still recovering from all the effects of the pandemic. But despite the challenges, there's a bright spot. Every month, the government puts out a labor report, how many new jobs were created in the country or how many lost. And last month, the job numbers were higher, way higher than anyone expected. Companies have opened up. They are expanding. They have plans. They want to get bigger and they are going to move mountains to find people to fill those positions. That's Matt Lundy, The Globe's economics reporter. He'll help us make sense of these numbers and why, even though this is good news, it may not be enough to make life feel more affordable. This is The Decibel. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Let's start with the news that came out at the the end of last week. How many jobs did Canada add in November? Yeah, so we added 154,000 jobs. Uh, The details were really great. You had big gains in areas like manufacturing, in healthcare, in retail. It was largely driven by the private sector as opposed to publicly funded jobs. You know, 154,000 jobs in any sort of typical pre-pandemic month, that is a gargantuan number. Now, the pandemic, you know, it made it's really distorted a lot of economic data over the past couple of years. But even this month for November, it was a lot better than what people were expecting. Going into it, economists had predicted about 38,000 jobs would be added. So we were about four times better than that. Wow. Yeah, that's that's huge. Can you put this in context for us a little bit? Why, why is this so significant? We've had various sort of fits and starts, if you will, with employment in, in hiring. And there's some really nice details in here about different milestones that we've hit. So uh, for instance, uh, Statistics Canada, which releases these numbers, it's a national statistics agency. They refer to something called like the working age uh, of Canadians, and that's 15 to 64. The percentage of people in that age bracket who are working is the highest it's ever been. So we've hit a record on that level. Uh, We've had this recovery in Uh, the number of hours worked in the economy, because that's one significant aspect of this, right? Like some people might be getting work, but they might not necessarily be working as many shifts as they want. Well, spread across across the entire economy, we are working as many hours as we did before the pandemic. So there have been so many uh, positive developments in labor just in the last few months. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, Can we just take a step back for a moment, though, to actually maybe, again, put this in a little bit of context? Why are job numbers so important when we we talk about measuring the economy? Yeah, so what we're essentially measuring here is the number of employed Canadians. So for shorthand, we often say we added 154,000 jobs uh, last month. What we're really talking about is that the number of employed Canadians is up 154,000 in the course of a month. It's people's finances. It's the productive capacity of the economy. It's, you know, even on a more sort of philosophical level, it's about uh, creating meaning in your life. If you have tons of unemployed people out there, it means that the government is probably going to have to take on unemployment programs, uh, that there's going to be a lot more social spending in that area. Um, It is not a good sign for the economy when you have a lot of people who are out of work. So let's break down these these new hires then, because as you said, this is a massive number of jobs added last month. But do we know what sectors they were in? 
Yeah, so three of the really big ones were uh, healthcare and social assistance, manufacturing, uh, and retail as well. Seeing that sort of response where those three sectors, very different industries, are all getting uh, massive gains, that's a really good sign, right? Because if you had a situation where you know, it was largely publicly funded jobs that were driving this or one industry that was doing the bulk of lifting, you'd maybe be a little bit more concerned about those numbers. But the fact that you got this breadth uh, is a really encouraging sign. What about who is actually getting these jobs? What do we know in terms of the age, the gender of, of, of these people that are, that are getting hired? One of the details here is that we are doing particularly well whether for men or women at uh, what StatsCan would call the core working age. So this is 25 to 54. Where things have been a little bit weaker is for young men and older women. So men 15 to 24 years of age, they still haven't had an employment recovery here. And likewise with women 55 and over. So there, there are clearly areas where um, not everyone necessarily has made that full recovery yet, and, and we should keep an eye on it. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Can, do we know why, let's start with the young men, do we know why younger men uh, have, have not seen this boost for employment? You know, one thing that you would want to consider in this is, well, is employment lower, for instance, because people have gone back to school? Now, I have my doubts about that with young men uh, because they, they aren't enrolled in post-secondary education at the same rates as young women. Uh, but yeah, you, you would be a little concerned here about uh, the rise. Maybe you've heard this term before, but NEETS, so not an employment education or training where you have some young men, and we've seen rates of this increase over time, uh, of people who are um, you know, not, not finding their way into upward mobility, not finding that sort of purpose in life. And then let's let's look at the other group that you mentioned there, women 54 and, and older. I mean, we've heard a lot about the, the she session about how, how women have been particularly affected, women's employment been particularly affected by the pandemic. Do we have a sense of why this uh, segment of the population hasn't hasn't seen this boost in employment right now as well? Yeah. So uh, one thing that I look towards to get an idea of how we're doing is labor participation rates. So that is the percentage of people who are either employed or searching for work. And it has dropped off, not just for older women, but older men as well, where they aren't participating in the labor market quite as much. Now, there are any number of reasons why that might be the case. Perhaps they got laid off and decided, you know what, with COVID, I'm older. I don't want to be exposed to the virus. I'm not going back to work. Perhaps they are having difficulties right now getting back into the labor market. Maybe there's some ageism going on there as well, right? But just to, to speak quickly on uh, what you mentioned about the she uh, session, those were some very uh, well-founded fears early in the pandemic, uh, particularly as we saw children being pulled out of schools, online learning. Um, you know, all it would take is a, is a cold for you to have to be pulling your kid out of school, uh, getting them tested, all of those things. And we did see materially that there was a bigger impact on working mothers than working fathers, uh, as you might expect. Thankfully, we have seen a really good snapback in, in employment. And in fact, for uh, women 25 to 54, their employment gains have been you know, slightly better than for men in that age bracket as well. So uh, I think we can be 
pretty encouraged that um, the worst fears of this she session uh, really haven't come to pass. Overall, though, it looks like, yeah, we have we've had pretty good numbers in terms of, of job creation, people actually working. What is this like compared to pre-pandemic times? Do we have a sense of what our situation is in terms of employment now versus before the pandemic? If you are to look at where we are employment wise today, sure, we have more people working than in February 2020, but they aren't necessarily uh, all working in the same sectors as before, right? And I think the most extreme example of this is with uh, accommodation and food services, what we would call the hospitality industry. So restaurants, hotels, and so on. They're down about 200,000 workers from before the pandemic. Uh, Agriculture is another area where they've lost quite a number of people as well. Okay, so so hospitality makes sense there, but but agriculture, what's happening there? Yeah, certainly to some degree, uh, part of that employment decline is the fact that there's been less immigration, less migrant workers in that area. In recent years, there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry, people literally selling the farm uh, and the disappearance of the, the small farmer is very much a thing. And perhaps that was accelerated in the pandemic as well. So what are experts saying is is behind this this big boom that happened in November? One thing that people are trying to figure out, or at least one of the theories, is that we had some uh, COVID-19 income support programs that expired in late October. So one of these is notably the Canada Recovery Benefit. Uh, It replaced CERB uh, last fall. And at times, there were over a million people receiving this. So a lot of self-employed, for instance, or if you didn't work enough hours for EI, those benefits ended in late October, um, as did the Q's program. That's wage subsidies uh, for companies to help them with payroll costs. One of the theories, of course, is that it may just simply be that people needed money and they needed to accept that job. Now, the only caveat to that is in the U.S., there were in the summer, uh, Republican-controlled states that got rid of an extra sort of income top-up for the jobless. And what people expected when they got rid of that money for people or that extra money for people is that there would be a flood of new employees coming in. And really, that did not materialize at first. So it, it might be a little too early to declare that the November numbers were driven by that, but it could certainly be a factor that Programs ending meant more people needed to take work. Yeah, I mean, on on the surface, that does seem like there's maybe some correlation there. I do want to ask though, because when we talked about what sectors saw a big boost, uh, healthcare was a was one of the ones that you you mentioned right off the top there, and and that's an area that did not really see a lot of COVID supports. Healthcare workers were working throughout this pandemic, so how how does that square? There have been nursing shortages going on for a long time, and there's been immense need in healthcare. Uh, and it's not necessarily uh, publicly funded. It's not necessarily work at hospitals. It could be long-term care. It could be in the private sector. As well, that category includes social assistance. So it could be social workers. I think there are any number of areas where there is just simply way more need for people to come in and do those uh, jobs. And that's primarily what's driving it. So it sounds like experts have some some theories about why this why this boost happened in November, but we don't really have an exact clear sense of why this occurred. The key message here is that employers are in a position right now where 
they can hire and they want to hire. The most recent numbers we've seen with job vacancies are that there are over a million job vacancies in Canada. There is extraordinary demand for labor right now. And that to me is the primary driver here, which is that companies have opened up, they are expanding, they have plans, they want to get bigger, and they are going to move mountains to find people to fill those positions. Okay, so the the job numbers seem like good news, but it's a bit confusing because, as you just mentioned, this, the labor shortage that we're also hearing about um, seems to kind of contradict that. So how can both of these things be true at the same time? I would say there are a handful of reasons for why there is a labor shortage when you have so much employment, which is one, we shielded businesses from a lot of the worst of COVID-19. If you think back to the early days, people were predicting massive bankruptcies. That just didn't happen. We spent uh, to help individuals and businesses in a way that we never have before in a recession. Normally in a recession, you get a ton of bankruptcies. That hasn't happened. In fact, they went down to a record low recently. So companies are in a position where they are, well, first of all, they exist, right? So they can make those hires and they are getting through to the other side of this recession for the most part. Another thing is that when you get to a position like this, where you have a lot of hiring going on and not necessarily enough people to fill all of these positions that have come up, there can be a lot of mismatches, right? And this is particularly clear in the pandemic that they're looking for about 200,000 people in the hospitality industry right now. Those 200,000 people don't necessarily exist. People had time to do a six-week training course or an eight-month certificate program or go back to get a master's degree. Um, Another thing as well is that we have had simply much lower immigration uh, for most of the pandemic. So uh, a normally consistent large supply of newcomers uh, to the country every month, that was reduced pretty significantly. And so that's going to make it a little tougher for employers to find people. That's actually an interesting point, because I don't know if that's something that would necessarily come up to or a lot of people would think about right off the bat, uh, the effect that immigration has there. Mm-hmm. Uh, c- can we just quickly ask about wages? What, what about wages? Are people taking more jobs now simply because wages are higher? Yeah. So one of these you know, basic sort of economic concepts is that in a tight labor market like we have now, it means that employers are going to have to pay people a lot more to to lure them, right? When uh, lower income, let's say retail uh, and restaurant workers were being laid off, it actually made average wages bump up quite a lot in Canada because you were, you know, getting rid of the bottom end of that distribution of people. So these these comparisons can be a little bit fraught. But StatsCan has come up with this sort of fixed wage measure, if you will, and they find that over the past two years. Uh, the average hourly wage has only gone up like 5.3%, uh, which is you know pretty tepid wage growth. It's not horrible, but it's not necessarily as strong as you would think uh, for how tight the labor market is. What are the larger impacts on the economy when we see such a big hiring boom like this? One of them is, when is the Bank of Canada going to raise interest rates? So ostensibly, the job for the Bank of Canada is to maintain price stability. And the way they view that is they're trying to target inflation at 2% year over year. Right now, inflation is running a lot higher. Uh, We're at about a 
two-decade high just over the past year, prices are up 4.7%. So there's something that the Bank of Canada looks to called the output gap. And that is the difference between actual growth in the economy and potential growth. And of course, over the pandemic, we've had this negative output gap or excess slack because, you know, we had millions of people unemployed, we had businesses shut down. But the Bank of Canada is saying, well, that output gap is going to be closed by the middle of next year. And if they don't raise interest rates around that point, what happens is that you get an overheating economy. Uh, businesses are trying to do too much with too few resources, and that drives up more persistent inflation. And how would, just just to spell it out here, how would a rate increase impact people in their day-to-day? Yeah, so what they're increasing is their like overnight lending rate. And this is basically the fundamental interest rate in the economy, which ripples out to all sorts of things. So all of those things mean that people are going to be having to make, you know, if you have a variable rate mortgage, for instance, um, having to make uh, larger payments every month, which then can affect also your other consumption, right? Like if you have less money uh, left over uh, after those mortgage payments or something like that, well, maybe that means maybe that means you're not going out to dinner, uh, you know, once a month like you normally do. So Matt, we've talked about a lot of different elements here, but I guess Overall, all this being said, how should we be feeling about about our economy today? I think we can feel pretty good about what is happening in the labor market. The fact that within two years, uh, we have not only recovered lost jobs, but now exceed that. The fact that we're creating job opportunities for a lot of different people. Um, those are things that are really positive signs here. It's not only that business bankruptcies have gone down, it's that personal insolvencies have gone down as well. Uh, People are also just sitting on a lot more money than they were before the pandemic. Some of the big banks in Canada uh, are showing that we're sitting on $300 billion more uh, collectively as individuals uh, in savings than before the pandemic. (laughs) The part where people are starting to feel a lot worse about things is definitely inflation, right? Like where we get not only our views of inflation, but our views of the economy in a lot of ways, uh, is informed by those price increases that we see on a regular basis. It's places like the gas pump, it's places like the grocery store, where we have constant sort of reference points of what we think is a normal price. And we're very sensitive to when those prices come up. We tend to not notice them, psychologists say, uh, when they go down. But right now, prices are definitely on the way up. We are rebounding quite rapidly in an economic standpoint in so many different ways, but there is just this bug in our ear about inflation and that's just driving a lot of stress for people right now. Before we go, there's an update on a story we recently covered about China with sports columnist Cahal Kelly, where I asked him this question. There has been some talk of boycotting the Beijing Olympics. Is that a movement that you think is actually going to gain traction with any countries? No, I don't think so. If it was going to happen, as diminished as their uh, status is in the world, it would be led by America. You've already seen them de facto say they were not doing it by announcing that they're considering a diplomatic boycott, whatever that means. It means that you know, Joe Biden won't go. On Monday afternoon, President Joe Biden announced that the U.S. will diplomatically boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. 
He said the decision was because of China's mass internment of the country's minority Uyghur population. Canada hasn't yet said if it will take a similar stance. The Olympics begin in just a couple of months. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Tim and Johnson is our intern. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. And Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Matt Lundy. You can find more of his work at theglobeandmail.com. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at ManikaRW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.